Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Hark. You can check out new episodes of the show every Tuesday and Thursday at 2 p.m. If you missed an episode or want to get more information about the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. SoupX, the Startup Expo, North America's premier startup conference, is March 6th and 7th, 2017, in sunny Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Affordably priced, SoupX is a two-day international conference featuring workshops, panels, speeches, a $50,000 startup competition, and over 100 exhibitors. For more information, go to sup-x.org. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Mike Lingle. He's an entrepreneur and mentor. Mike, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much, Kevin. It's uh, great to be back. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, I, I love having you on the show, and uh, you know the, the listeners seem to really enjoy what we, we have uh, always kind of talked about, so I thought, let's have you back, you know? Um, so yeah, so I think maybe just for people that don't know who you are, let's maybe give them a kind of a quick overview again of uh, who you are and kind of what you're doing currently, and they can kind of go back to our previous episodes on- online to, to listen to kind of a little bit more in detail, but... Kind of maybe just give them a quick overview of kind of what you're up to now from kind of the Venture Hive and the Tonic Studio side of things. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm an entrepreneur. Um, I started a bunch of companies all in kind of the same space. It was uh, presentations. So basically doing network versions of PowerPoint before PowerPoint was networked. Uh, and we eventually moved that into a cloud, into the cloud and uh, started a company called Slide Rocket, raised some money. Uh, that company ended up bringing in uh, a CEO from Salesforce.com who got the company sold to VMware, so it was you know, great for everyone who was involved. Uh, I was in New York for a long time doing the startup thing and then moved down to Miami and uh, got plugged into the startup scene down there and you know, really felt like I could help. You know, there's not a ton of people in Miami who've been through that cycle before. But there's a lot of entrepreneurs trying to start stuff. Um, so I got started consulting with entrepreneurs both in Miami and New York. And that eventually led to uh, mentoring at an accelerator in Miami called Venture Hive. And we just started another cohort of, um, of companies in the past couple weeks. We're doing a 12-week program. You know, and the main goal is really making sure the entrepreneurs have the tools they need to succeed. Uh, regardless of what happens to this particular company. I don't mean to sound so harsh about it. Obviously, we want their current companies to succeed. Sure. Uh, but those of us with some gray hair know that, you know, you get another chance at that eventually. Sure. Um, but we want to make sure that they're really the best entrepreneurs they can be. I got you. Uh, in, addition, um, in addition, I do a bunch of consulting and mentoring with, uh, you know, my own roster of startups. Uh, and I was telling you before the show, I, I feel kind of like a therapist. Like I have office hours every day uh, with just calls or meetings, you know, every hour with different entrepreneurs, some of them from the Venture Hive Accelerator, some of them I'm working with on my own. Uh, and then sometimes with companies, I'll do deep dives and help them with sales or marketing or strategy or, you know, get a little more in-depth. I also do a lot of helping entrepreneurs through negotiations. Um, okay. Strategy negotiations, like you know, how do you how do you get what you want when other people are involved, and how do you make sure that they're getting what they need what they need too? 
Yeah, so it's fair so for it's, everybody, you know, right? The fun stuff. <laughs> right. Also, some some of the most important stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's a challenge sometimes. Sure. So I'm curious, you mentioned kind of about VentureHive and the tools that you kind of are, are teaching people. Do you maybe want to kind of cover loosely kind of like what, what does that really mean? Like what type of stuff do you kind of teach people and what kind of tools do you kind of give them? Right. Uh, so, you know, and it's funny, it sort of goes back. I started my first company at 25. Uh, I did not have an MBA, but I had customers and uh, I was making money. Right. And I started making enough money that I started hiring people. And uh, it worked well for a while when the economy was doing well. But then when uh, 2000 hit and the dot-com crash came, you know, the tide went out. Uh, and my boat had a lot of holes in the bottom of it. Got you. So I ended up having to lay a bunch of people off. And the biggest problem was I really didn't know how to run a business. Like I said, it, it worked when things were good. But the company my business partner and I were building didn't work when things were bad. And it turned out we were way out over our skis, but didn't even realize it, you know? Sure. No, that makes sense. Uh, and so in working with entrepreneurs, I find a lot of people in the same situation where it would really help to have a crash course on, you know, how to run a business, first of all. Because it's very different than whatever the skill is that these people have. Sure. You know, I was... I was doing custom development for big corporations and that was my skill, but I also had to learn how to run a business and hire people and manage teams and, uh, you know, get jobs done. And there's a whole bunch of extra stuff that comes along with running a business that, you know, it's important for people to learn. But once you're in motion, you don't really have time to stop and go get an MBA. Totally. Uh, and then two, I think, you know, the mentoring really helps like the MBA, um, is great and there's a lot of case studies but you know in our program you can actually bring your business into the program and we'll open it up through weekly mentoring sessions and really you know customize the experience towards you and what you're going through right oh, that's awesome so if you're trying to get an idea off yeah so and it's great like if you're trying to get an idea off the ground we'll help you do that if you're already in motion and you have customers and you're trying to scale we'll help you do that um so it's this combination of like the basics along with customize, get in there and figure out your specific issues. No, that and, makes sense. Uh, you know, and what I've found is even after, even after all the time that I've spent learning businesses, you know, when I got started with VentureHive, um, I went back and went through the curriculum and I relayed a lot of my own foundation because <laughs> I've done it, I've been successful, but I never really, you know, in a formal way learned everything I needed to learn. So it's actually been a great experience for me. Plus I get to watch, I get to watch it through a bunch of other companies' eyes. Like it's kind of a magical experience for me mentoring because I'm watching, you know, 15 companies at a time work through their own issues. So I learn a lot through their, through their eyes. Sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. I, and, and like in some ways, I think like obviously like I went to university and stuff too, but <clears throat> in some ways I think you learn more actually in the trenches doing this stuff than you ever do in school. And I, I'm not saying you shouldn't go to school. It's just I don't think you need to right. go to like 
or have a degree to be successful in, in, especially in this space, right? Like you can learn this stuff as you go. And in some cases it's almost, you learn more in the field doing it than you do potentially in school. Yes. I, I don't actually have a degree. Um, you know, I wanted to be an architect. Right. And right. Um, so I was working for architecture firms, and it was really going to be a long road. And, you know, it was sort of a bad combination of I wasn't, it was going to take a really long time. I wasn't going to get to do anything cool for a long time, and I wasn't going to make any money. Sure. You know, and what finally got me out of architecture was I went to, I think I was making like, I don't know, 10 bucks an hour or something. I went to my, my, the architect who ran the firm and I said I wanted 12 bucks an hour, 14 bucks an hour. And he was like, for that, I can get a licensed architect in who's been practicing for 10 years. And I was like, well, then I quit. Cause like, I don't want to put all that work in and only be making 14 bucks an hour versus, you know, that's with the license and with more school versus, you know, uh, software, I could just show up and I was good and I could just do it. No, totally. I, you know, I within, agree. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I guess a short like, amount of time I was doing super high profile projects and like I could, like we did kiosks for IBM and Pfizer. Like I had a kiosk in the window of the world headquarters at Pfizer on 42nd street. And I, awesome. those, those were like things I could go look at, you know? Sure. And it was like, I did this. I built this. Yeah, no, totally. That's like, great. and like, I went to university and just took like one of their kind of programming courses, but it wasn't like I don't have a degree either. Like, I, I think it came out with like a diploma. Right. I don't even remember what it was called. Like, uh, I remember what the program is called, but like, I think I think it's just proof, right? Like, like so many people are like you need a degree in this or that. It's like, well, there's a lot of people that are successful doing this stuff that that don't have it, right? And I guess the t- two of us are proof of that. So, you know, I, I think it's, that's that's important to kind of mention to kind of the listener, right? I think. You can learn a lot of this stuff, and there's books on it, and there's a lot of stuff online, and there's so much of this stuff, right? And there's so many people trying to create great content around this, and and I kind of love what you guys are doing with the Venture Hive space because you're almost like tailoring an MBA to their what they need instead of just going to university and taking a one that kind of teaches you general stuff, right? Which is good. I just it's in a different approach, right? And not one's not better than the other. It's just you can there's options right and people should consider all their options and whatever works for them right and i think we okay so i have two things to say i i want to just say the flip side is i don't think people you know i don't think it works to go out into the world knowing nothing and fair you know essentially essentially just making it up as you go along that's uh so i think it is important to get some kind of educational foundation it doesn't have to be a degree but you do have to know what you're doing and be able to work with other people and be able to deliver what you say you're going to deliver. Fair enough. Yeah. So I think that's where a program like Venture Hive is important. You know, it is a foundation and there is a real curriculum there. Uh, and the other thing I would say is we live in the golden age of content, yeah. right? Like what's happening right now is the internet has figured out that the way to succeed is to provide your best knowledge for free. Yep. Right. So if you want to learn something, it's out there and you can learn the best, you know, the best way to do it. Uh, And then the trick for me is I can't just read about it. I have to go practice it. Um, And that's where I really like the consulting. That's where I really like the mentoring. 
you know, a lot of a lot of the consulting for me is learning something new and then getting paid to implement it. Right. And a lot of the mentoring is learning from watching people implement stuff and seeing how it goes. So that I'm constantly, you know, not just learning, but also getting that experience uh, both from myself and from other people. And that's how I get better and better and better. Yeah, and I, I love how, like, even somebody like yourself is still learning, right? I think that's important oh, yeah. to mention that, like, you've been successful, but you're still learning. And I think the other thing that I find really interesting, and I've even done it with you, is, like, I wrote to you, I don't know, a month or two ago about, like, I'm looking for books in these subject areas. Like, what do you recommend? And you sent me back, like, you should read these books. And I think, like, just having, just networking with people that can provide resources where it's just like a quick email or a quick like, hey, I'm looking to learn more about yeah. like this specific thing. What do you think? Right. And, you know, I've, I've read both of the books that you suggested to me and like they were awesome. Right. And so I think I, I think it's super important to mention kind of that as well. Right. That like you mentioned, there's like there's so much content out there that it's it's like almost uh, like yeah, either free so or paid. Right. Yep. So but but I'm curious Maybe. Go ahead. Sorry. Actually, let me say one other thing. Sure. The other thing I will say is like stuff changes so fast. You know, I took three years off to do music. Yep. And when I came back into the tech world, like the tech world had changed. Sure. <laughs> Just in three years. So it took a minute to ramp back up into like what's going on now. So I think more than ever, it's important to just constantly be learning. Yeah. No, totally. That that makes a lot of sense, and I, I I totally kind of agree with you. And I and I think um, it kind of is a decent segue into what we kind of wanted to talk about today. And I think um, you you've been writing a bunch of blog posts over the last little while, and I've found a lot of value in them um, personally. And so I thought we should kind of maybe do a show or this show kind of around kind of what you've been writing about recently and stuff that you know I've even been kind of dealing with in my own kind of day job. And, and that's kind of around um, pricing and kind of sales. And I think, you know, obviously those are hugely important and, and completely related to each other. And so you wrote a really interesting post kind of about um, how, how you should be teaching instead of kind of just like hardcore selling to people. And so I was kind of interested to know Maybe do you want to kind of give kind of an overview of your view on kind of, you know, teaching working better than just kind of constantly just hardcore selling to people? Yeah. Um, and I think it ties back into that concept of the golden age of content. Mm -hmm. I think what we've learned is that giving away our best content for free leads to opportunities. Sure, totally. So, you know, I can give away my knowledge, but where, where people really benefit um, or some subset of people really benefit is an actual, you know, getting into some kind of mentoring or consulting arrangement with me. Sure. Um, but if they can, if they get what they need out of my free content, that's fine with me too. Um, you know, I have enough people who, who bubble up to the surface from the free stuff I put out. And so I think it's the same, and that's essentially a marketing thing. You know, I'm pushing it out onto the web people find it or I'm pushing it out to an email list, people read it, and then some number of them come to me. And I've found 
I get all kinds of comments, both from people I know and from people I don't know online, but also in real life. Sure. You know, I was at a party the other night, and someone realized that I was the person whose uh, newsletter they've been reading. And they were like, oh, that's you. And we started talking about the newsletter. That's awesome. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, the, the goal is to just keep pushing out great content, right? And that works really well for marketing. Yes. Um, and I guess the point here is that also works really well for sales. Uh, you know, I built, I, I built a lot of my career off of sales. I was always selling into big companies. Um, and so, you know, the worst, the worst moment in sales is when someone stalled, you know, you have a potential sale and stalled and you're, you know, you reach out to them and say, are you ready to buy yet? Right. right. And there's, uh, you know, I think there was a software commercial that made fun of that. It was like, how much software do you want to buy? Yeah, <laughs> I um, remember that. Right, and the answer is always zero. Like, if you're reaching out to someone and just saying, are you ready to buy yet? The answer is probably no. Sure. Um, versus if you reach out to them and say, hey, you know, this is probably interesting to you. You remind them that you exist. You give them something of value, and they know you've got your their, your proposal sitting on their desk. So they're going to think of you, and maybe that moves the deal forward. So that's kind of the the basic idea. Um, and then from there, you get into why does someone want to talk to you? You know, if I'm selling something, I'm likely going to have to talk to that person. Uh, either through my web copy and my marketing or in person, either on the phone or in a meeting. Right. You know, and why does, that, why does that person want to engage with me? So on the web, you have a strategy of, of giving away content. Um, like, you know, I use a bunch of, uh, I use Instapage, which is like a landing page site. Yep. And they give away a bunch of information on building your email list because that's what a lot of people use landing pages for, right? So that, that content that they generate pulls me in and in the process of telling me how to build their email list, they introduce me to uh, the need for landing page software to build that list. Sure. Um, so, so that works on the web, but what happens when you need to talk to someone in person you know, the instinct is I want to get a meeting with you and then I want to show up and I want to tell you all about myself. Um, and it turns out people don't really like that. So kind of the, the first generation was something called spin selling, um, which is more of a conversational thing where you really try to understand uh, what's going on with the customer and then tailor the, the pitch to them. And... I used a version of that for a long time that worked pretty well. Uh, and what we finally ended up with was uh, Pitch Deck, where we had the second slide was a list of problems that uh, customers had. Okay, and I would just let them read the slide. And then they would you know, ask them to tell me which you know, two or three of those were the most painful for them. And then I could structure the, the rest of the pitch around, around that. Interesting. Um, and I, I think where some sales pitches fall apart is either the salesperson just talks about themselves and goes through every detail, and that's really annoying and it takes a really long time, 
or, you know, sometimes it can turn into feeling a little bit like an inquisition right. where the salesperson shows up and starts asking all these questions. And it's like, I don't want to answer all these questions. I just want to know how you can help my business. Right. Um, so, so having that slide about the pain points right at the beginning kind of puts you and the customer on the same side of the issue and you can commiserate over those pain points. And then it also opens up the conversation and it tells you how to focus your efforts and keep things short, but to the point. Sure. Uh, and then what's happening, you know, what's happened in the past few years is there's kind of a new generation of sales, uh, which started with this challenger sales thing. Yeah. Uh, so there's a book called the challenger sale. Uh, and I got introduced to, to it by a guy named Mark Crofton who uh, uh, does the internal sales academy at uh, SAP, which is a software giant. Yeah. And they've done a huge company-wide implementation of Challenger Sale, and I think there's like a Harvard, um, Harvard Business School case study that they've raised revenues by you know, 30% since implementing wow. uh, Challenger Sale. Wow. Which is impressive, right? Totally. That's um, huge. And the basic idea of challenger sale, there's really, there's two pieces to it. So the first is you figure out what you know that you can teach the customer. Right. Um, and, and it's a little tricky because uh, the customer obviously knows their business better than you do. Sure. But, but what you know is usually you can see a cross Customers, So you can see across an industry or across multiple industries. And you may have some knowledge uh, that the customer doesn't have. And you can really open their eyes to something. Uh, and it can happen in one of two ways. It can be, it can be stuff that you know, uh, or it can be in, uh, sort of an industry change. Um, you know, something is changing out there in the world. And smart companies really, you know, are getting on top of it, whereas companies that don't stand to lose out as the world shifts underneath them. Yeah. Uh, but either way, you want to kind of paint the picture of, you know, you could get this big reward, but also sort of put this fear into them that they're going to miss out if they don't, if they don't uh, get with the new, the new program. And then the magic, so you're teaching them something that they don't know. And then kind of the magic of the challenger sale is that you can then bring that back into something that you specifically can help them with that other people can't. Sure. That makes sense. Uh, but in all cases, you're really laying out this, this learning and providing some value long before you ever talk about yourself. So you're talking about yourself at the end of the presentation, not the beginning. Yeah, interesting. That makes a lot of sense. Right. And it, I mean, it's similar to the content marketing strategies that lots of people use where they're throwing out all this free content. At the end, they're like, you know, and this is me and come visit my website if you want to learn more. Right. Well, so, yeah. No, like in, in some ways, that's almost what I'm doing with the show, right? Is like I have people on. You know, if people find what we're talking about interesting, they go look up that person or their company or product or service and then hopefully get more information. And if they're still interested, then they reach out. Right. And 
So it makes a lot of sense, right? That you just put out content and, you know, you're promoting yourself, but you're also promote, you're also teaching people. And, you know, I think a lot of cases it's, it's good to give back too. I think for, for at least for me, like I remember like when I was kind of coming up early on in my career, I always, you know, I reached out to people and I said, will you meet me for coffee? I just, you know, want to pick your brain or, or whatever. Right. And I, you know, like not everybody writes back, but the, the nice thing is, is the people that do write back. And so now I, I want to give back to a community that, you know, gave to me kind of coming up. Right. And I think that's super important as well. Right. And it's not really necessarily, again, kind of like selling, but it's like teaching. And, and if you can give back to kind of people that are kind of coming up as well, you know, it might not amount to anything right away it might come back like a decade later i've had people it's like i saw you here we talked then it's like (laughs) you know right like you never know right but they remember that right and i think that's more valuable than trying to hardcore sell people all the time is just you know trying to give back to to this right and and that's that's exactly what you're doing with the blog post and like you said sometimes that converts into you know people that you can mentor right Right. So, and I, I totally agree with you. I love the giving back part of this. You know, it, it's great. Um, it feels good, and it's nice to to be able to offer a little bit of experience to people. Sure. So, I'm curious to know, and and it ties directly into kind of this kind of selling, and you kind of mentioned a little bit about um, sales pitch, but I think important is kind of a uh, pricing and I know you wrote a, a recent article about pricing so I'm kind of curious to know and and just for the kind of the listener is how do you kind of price a product and and you know what are your kind of rationales between picking one price over another price and then you know I'm kind of curious to know your thoughts on pricing right and the, you know the the seed of that article was planted I was having a conversation with someone who has uh, a product that they they made, and they have you know they sell to retailers and the retailers sell to consumers. Right. And the retailers love this product and they're carrying it. And so I was I was talking to him and he was like you know the retailers love it. I have these features that retailers want that aren't out in the marketplace, and I'm pricing it below my competition. And I said, wait a minute, like just pick one of those things, right? Like if if you have something that people want, you don't have to price it lower than the competition. You can price it fairly. Sure. You don't have to price it more than the competition, but you're, you know, you're essentially leaving money on the table there. And certainly at the beginning of a startup's life, you know, the biggest problems, the biggest problem besides time is usually cash. Okay. So if you can, if you can charge a fair price, that cash is going to be useful, right? You know, it helps you with sales and marketing and team building and all the stuff, product development, all the stuff you need to do. Uh, So that was kind of the seed of the article was like, wait a minute, just pick one. And you're probably better off competing on features than you are on price because, you know, the best example of competing on price that I've seen is Uber, right? Okay. So Uber for a long time has had this advantage that they can raise more money than anyone. Sure. Um, Maybe they're coming to the end of their ability to do that. I can't predict the future. 
but you know they're priced at sixty billion now or whatever it is, and it's just you know it just gets harder and harder to raise to raise big chunks of money. But there are other services, right? So I was at uh, you know I was out in New York at dinner on Wednesday night, and someone pulled out this Juno app that I hadn't seen before, but he was like, it's just like Uber, but it's thirty percent less, right? So like. And I was thinking about it, like, no one has any loyalty to Uber. Like, I don't care if I use Uber. Even in, you know, I'll use Uber, I'll use Lyft, or now I'll use this Juno thing. I'll just look for whatever's cheaper and who has the closest car. Sure. So, so Uber's been buying my, my um, you know, they've been getting me to buy from them based on price, but it doesn't build any loyalty. And, right. And I don't really care. And, like, that makes me concern for uber right sure because like what happens when they can't undercut on price or what happens when they have to keep undercutting on price i mean i guess you move into self-driving cars but but i don't know what you're really building there in the long term um granted uber has certainly built a successful business and i'm not you know i'm not disparaging uber but it just makes me concerned because like who has any loyalty to Uber, right? And that I feel like that's what happens when you compete on price. Yeah, that's, so, that's really good advice. Um, so I really feel like if you're, if you're winning on features, you know, price yourself fairly and build loyalty through those features. Um, and the converse is Apple, which charges an arm and a leg for everything, yep. but it's great, right? And people are super loyal to Apple. Yep even though they're paying more than the competitor, like the, that discount doesn't buy you any loyalty. Yep. It's the features and the experience that buy you the, the loyalty. Totally. Yeah, I um, 100% agree. Yeah. And then to circle around to your, your second question about how do you price things, uh, I, I think one of the books I told you uh, to read was Running Lean by yep. Ash Moria. Yep. And he's got some great stuff around pricing there. Um, so, so a couple key things about pricing, you know, one is uh, part of what he wants you to do, and this comes from Steve Blank, uh, who wrote a book called Four Steps to the Epiphany, Eric Reese, who wrote The Lean Startup with Steve Blank's student, and then Ash Moria is building on both Eric Reese and Steve Blank's stuff. But basically, you know, what Steve Blank said was get out of the building. Uh, the only thing inside your building are opinions. The facts are out there in the real world, right? Yep. Uh, so, so basically go out, interview potential customers, try to really understand their, their problems, bring along uh, in the second round of interviews once you understand the problems, bring around, bring around a mock-up of your proposed solution. Don't build anything yet, but you know, bring around something that people can see and, and understand, and bring around your pricing model. So how did you get to that pricing model in the first round of interviews when you were understanding the pain points? You were also asking, you know, how do you solve this problem now and what do you pay for it? Right? Sure. So you start to get a sense and, and if people aren't paying to solve a problem, it may not be a good business. <laughs> sure. Because you're gonna have to educate them that they even have to pay to solve the problem. You know, one of the beautiful things about Uber is people are already paying for cabs. Yep. So they were used to paying for on-demand transportation. And Uber just came along with a much better solution. Sure. Um, 
but it, but the pricing was all for Uber was always based off of you know the private cars or the cabs. It was always in that same range, uh, and then it eventually became you know it's it's cheaper than the private car. It's cheaper than the cab, um, but it, it was always based on what people were already paying. So that's that's a good place to start is through your research about you know what people are doing to solve the problem now and what they're paying. Uh, and then one other thing to keep in mind is that people cannot tell you what they will pay. The only way to validate your pricing model is to get people to actually pay it. Um, and I think that's part of the genius of what Ash Moria lays out is in that second round of interviews where you go in with the mock-up and the pricing model, you get people to commit right there. And then when you come back with, with whatever your version one is, you know, they're, they've already pre-committed to buy. Now, granted, that's not the same as buying, but it's pretty close. Sure. And you can get people to, you know, he has some quote about, uh, he had 50 paying customers before he ever wrote a line of code. And I think that's genius, right? Totally. No, totally. I, yeah, I 100% agree. It, it's interesting. It, like, it's kind of a daunting task for, for people when they're kind of starting out or it's kind of their first go at a, at a startup. But... Like, I, I don't think there can be any better advice to get than if you can validate your idea based on, like, a mock-up or prototype and you can get basically paying or almost paying customers. Or, like, they'll, they'll say, we will pay for this once it's built. That is nothing validates your idea better than that. Right. So the sooner you can get their money into your account, the sooner you know that you're on the right path with prices. Sure, that's fair enough. And like, and then you can always, yeah, you can always tweak it from there. Do you have any thoughts or experience on even getting people to pay when it's still like a prototype before it even kind of is launched? Like, is that even a thing that you could potentially do? Have paying customers before you're even really they're even really able to use it? I've done it. Um, I mean, I've done it essentially for custom software projects. Yeah. Uh, so the short answer is yes. Okay. Um, and I think, I think in the, in today's world, Kickstarter is the best example of that. Sure. Right. Yep. Like you go to Kickstarter to get people to pay you for something you haven't built yet. Right. Um, so the short answer is yes. Okay. And, and I guess, like, I, I remember even, like, Mark Cuban starting his first computer business. He, he, like, I remember reading his book or one of his books years ago, and it was, like, he basically told the guy that his first consulting job or whatever it was, he was, like, it's going to be, like, $500 or something. It doesn't really matter the amount. And he said, like, if I don't deliver, I'll give you your $500 back. And, like, he delivered. But you know what I mean? Like, so it can be done, and I think a lot of people – are almost scared to kind of ask for money even when they have like a launched version one, right? Mm -hmm. But I think the point I'm trying to get across is that there's people doing it before they even, like you said, wrote, write a line of code. Right. And I think the successful entrepreneurs make money. I, I mean, I know that sounds so dumb, <laughs> no, but like I can't tell you how many people I talk to who, who, aren't trying to make money. 
like it's weird. It's like they're running some weird kind of charity instead of a business. Yep. I, I got into an argument with an entrepreneur one time because he was fighting to not put a line in his financial model for his own salary because that would throw off the numbers. Really? And I was like, you are planning to never pay yourself. <laughs> like, that's not a business. I, you know? And, uh, and so for me, I firmly believe in making money. Sure. And I firmly believe in making money as soon as possible. Uh, and I don't love business plans that go a really long time without making money. Now, that means I miss out on things like Facebook, which obviously is a monster. Um, and because they were building essentially an advertising platform, they needed tens of millions of eyeballs, and they had to do stuff for free for a very long time. Sure. But like but that's almost like winning the lottery, right? Like. Like trying to find it one is of almost those, like winning the lottery, right? right. Like, so, I I know like everybody wants to build the next Facebook or Google or Apple or Instagram or the list goes on and on, right? But like actually being able to find that or come up with that idea is a lot of times those companies didn't even start out to become what they became. Like Facebook was started yeah. in like at a college campus, like in his dorm room, right? Uh, like he never planned on it being one of the biggest internet companies of all time or companies of all time for, for that matter, right? right? And so like it's so hard that people are like, I'm gonna be the next Facebook. It's like, sure you are because Facebook was never thought they would be Facebook, right? Right, and some companies have done it. Like Instagram has done it, sure. Twitter did it, WhatsApp has done it, Yep. Snapchat has done it. You know, like it's, it's doable. Uh, and actually, um, Peter Thiel, Peter Thiel had a great, uh, I forget where it was, but he was talking about why he invested in Facebook, right? Okay. And he's like, look, when they came to me, their big problem was that they were so popular that their servers were breaking and they needed money to improve their server capacity. And so he's like, it was really a no brainer. Sure. Right? Like they weren't coming to me and saying, we want to build this and it'll be successful one day. They were coming and saying, we're already so successful that we just need money to keep up with demand. Sure. And so that's why he invested, right? So sure. I do believe that if you, if you have built something that's that popular, by all means, give it away for free and then monetize it on the back end. Right. Um, but if but if it's not so popular that your servers are breaking, you may need to figure out a way to make money soon. Fair enough. I I know it's interesting because I meet even just like because I do pre-interviews before I have anybody on the show, and you know okay. there's there's a bunch of people that you know I've done pre-interviews with, and we we kind of get to that business as I always ask like how do you monetize this, and a lot of times I'm like no like you. Like, I don't mean to be mean or like a jerk or anything, but it's like I can't have you on the show to talk about something that I don't think is ever going to generate money and you have no intention of ever making any money because it's like, how do, I, how do I have you on the show to give advice about being successful when you're not successful or and I don't think you're going to be successful and you're not planning on being successful? Right. Like, it's, right. it's a weird thing. And, and so... To your point, I, I think it makes a lot of sense, right? And I'm sure we've 
anybody that ever works or knows how to write code or fix a computer always gets asked at a party, like, oh, I got the next Facebook idea. We're going to go 50-50. I get 50% because I just told you the idea, and you're going to get the other 50%, and you're going to have to go build it. It's like, huh? <laughs> right. I'm sure you've gotten that too, right? It's like, well, it's a lot more complicated <laughs> than just, you know, that, right? It's like there's so many things that go into running a successful, profitable startup that people don't understand, especially people that aren't technical. Right. And do you find then, I'm curious, do you find that when people don't have a business model more more time than not, they're a non-technical founder or they are technical or a bit yeah. of both? Or, or what's your experience with that? Uh, it tends to be non-technical. Okay. I, I mean, it's not it's not that simple, but yes, a lot of the times when I get that is just non-technical founders. Got you. Okay, that's interesting. I that's kind of what I guess I would have suspected, right? Because just they don't, yeah. and it's not their own. Like it's just they've never been in the trenches, kind of building this stuff, or really understand how complicated and time-consuming that building some of this stuff is, or or isn't, right? For that matter. Right. And I think that's where Ash Moria and Eric Reese and Steve Blank all make a good point is like, really, you shouldn't be building anything, you know, and I think especially non-technical people, well, and technical people, I think the entrepreneur's first instinct is to go build something. And then when it's perfect, bring it out to the world. Sure. And that is an expensive waste. Totally. Um, because really where things succeed are the intersection between the vision and how other people actually behave. And so it brings us back to, you know, the only thing in the building is your opinions and you've got to get out in the real world to really understand, you know, how the world works and how, what people actually do and what they actually value. Yep. And, and, and what they'll actually pay, like where is the value for them? No, that's, that's fair. And like, um, the one thing that I, really resonated with me recently is um, I do kind of a bunch of stuff in kind of the enterprise software space. Uh, like we usually work in that kind of space and we were, well, it wasn't actually on a call. It was a video WebEx recording and we built like a rough prototype for a partnered company that we're, we're working with. And they were demoing this like rough prototype, like it kind of worked, but it was very much like early, early beta. You could probably even say like maybe even alpha. And literally the lady on the other line was like, I hate what we're currently using so much that we're paying a, like a large subscription for yearly that I will sit with your team of developers and go like feature by feature to just like build something that replaces what I'm currently using. And like what they're looking to do isn't that complicated and to be fair, isn't really that sexy. But what really resonated to me about that was if you can really solve somebody's problem, you can make a lot of money doing that. And it might not be the sexiest product or, or service, but at least for me, what I like about it is I really like software that solves a real problem for real people. And I also really like, like, I like that technical challenge. Like for me, it doesn't really matter what the piece of software actually does. It's 
just being able to like technically solve that problem, right? And I think that's to me the fun part of being involved in startups. And I think if you look outside kind of the, maybe like the trendy, sexy kind of apps and actually really try to solve real problems for clients or, you know, other kind of, you know, friends or like your clients' clients, it, you, you never know what piece of software you can kind of build to solve one of their really big pain points, right? Right, and what makes Uber successful is not their software. Sure. What makes Uber successful is it's a really easy way to get a car on demand. Sure, <laughs> right? And, right? Like it's, it's the problem that is solved for me. I don't care how Uber does it. Exactly. Like if it was, you know, if it was guys standing on corners with cars, that's fine with me too. Yep. And like if, if, if somebody would have came to you early before Uber was a thing and said like, I'm basically making an app that, that you know, gets you a car, you're kind of like, well, that's not really that cool or interesting because it's kind of been done. <laughs> but how they did it and the execution of it and kind of just how, like, right? They build a whole business around something that really isn't that sexy if you actually analyze it for being this like cool hip company. It's kind of become that in the, the media's kind of eye, but if you actually look at it, it's really not that complicated and it's really not that sexy of like an actual product, right? And I'm not trying to bash yeah. on them. I'm just trying to say like, oh, you're right. you know, and, and that's, I guess, the point I'm trying to get across with, with all this stuff, that there's a lot of things to actually build to solve a lot of really good problems and make it better for people, right? When people are just annoyed with, yeah. I don't know, like trying to catch a cab, if I can just pull it, tell my phone to get me a car and pick me up, you know, that's better than kind of trying to hail a cab in rush hour or whatever, or you're coming home from the bar or whatever, right? If you just poke at your phone, right. it's easier. And that solves a real problem for people. And, and that's kind of what that lady through that webinar was basically saying, like, look, like, I hate what I have so bad that I will tell somebody, like, just fix my problem. And I will, you know, and it's not really... Yep. And I, I love that about kind of the software space. And I, I know I just took up like a bunch of our time just ranting, but that's I think awesome. that's important. You got like passionate. That's good. I like the earth. Yeah, I love it though. And I had someone. Go ahead. I had sorry. someone tell me the same thing last week. I had someone. I was in a conversation with someone, and he was like, "Look, most money gets made on non-sexy businesses." Yep. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, so it's funny to hear you saying it too, but it's true. Like it's it's problem solving. It's not sexiness. Yeah, and you can make money trying to build like a sexy like Snapchat or Instagram or, or whatever. Obviously, it's been done, but I think you're gonna have an easier time trying to solve a a non sexier problem than you are trying to build something that you know billions of people are gonna use, right? Yeah. So I don't know. Um, we are kind of running out of time, Mike. So I think we should maybe close the show with. Um, where people can find more information about yourself and, uh, you know, anything else you want to kind of mention before we uh, end this thing? Yeah. Uh, so everything I have is online at MikeLingle.com, M-I-K-E-L-I-N-G-L-E. -E. Uh, and if anyone's interested in the accelerator stuff, uh, VentureHive uh, is based in Miami. Um, they're a great resource. And uh, yeah, I guess just 
you know, and your show is awesome. Uh, so people should definitely check that out and uh, listen to more of the interviews that you do. Yeah, and, and you can visit any of the past interviews I've done with yourself at buildingthefutureshow.com. All right, Mike. Well, um, you know, thanks again for doing this. I'm sure we'll do another one at some point. Uh, you know, uh, thanks again for doing this, and I, I look forward to kind of keeping in touch with you and uh, have a good rest of your day. Yeah, thanks so much. I always enjoy our conversation. All right, man. We'll talk soon. All right. Thanks, Kevin. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com. And keep going the future.